When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or homes sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's good to see everyone. You know, recently... Uh, I was, uh, I can't, I was racking my memory where it happened, um, but I was with some children and they were digging through a toy box and they came up with this gadget and they all looked at it and they did not know what it was. And I immediately knew what it was, brought back a ton of memories. It was a yo-yo. They had no idea what it was and they had no idea how to use it. So of course, you know, being the yo-yo aficionado of my mind and my mind and memories of elementary and junior high school in 1970s, I picked that thing up and I said, you can do all kinds of things with this, right? You can walk the dog, you can go around the world, you can rock the baby in the cradle, you can hit your friend upside the head. That was my, that was really good at that one, right? So I put that thing on and I got ready and, and, and it just flopped. I had clearly lost all my yo-yoing skills, right? You remember yo-yos, right? Remember when they went from the little wooden ones, and this was a little wooden one, to the, to the plastic ones that were a little bit bigger, and they even had lights in them. I thought that was just the coolest thing. You know, I wanted that for Christmas one year, a plastic yo-yo that had lights in it. Loved yo-yos. But you know, that, that word yo-yo actually has a negative connotation, doesn't it? Yo-yo dieting. You know that? Yeah. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yo-yo dieting. 
Um, that, you know, up and down, up and down. And you go from the Atkins diet to the South Beach diet, to the keto diet, to the kale diet, to the, you know, up and down, yo-yo dieting, right? Now, some of you, you kind of nodded your head immediately. You knew what I'm talking about. You, you've, you've had that struggle of yo-yo dieting. And then some of you, with all the glee and smugness that you could give me, acted totally you know, unattached to that idea of yo-yo dieting. Congratulations, good for you. But I guarantee you've experienced yo-yo Christianity. In fact, all of us, in one way or another, if you've been a Christian at any length of time, have experienced yo-yo Christianity. In fact, even if you aren't a Christian, you've experienced yo-yo Christianity. If you aren't a Christian, the, the, the explanation for why your Christian friends sometimes seem to be you know, people of faith and religion, and, you know, they have this testimony about following Jesus, and they live that out faithfully, and in other times, they're not a whole lot different than other people that you know who aren't Christians. The explanation for that, yo-yo Christianity. Yo-yo Christianity. We've all, if you're a Christian, you've experienced yo-yo Christianity. You know what I mean? You know, there's those times where you are just on a mountaintop, and it seems like the, the, the battle against sin, for example. Maybe you have a besetting sin that has troubled you and you go through a season of life and it just seems like you have victory over that sin. And life is good during that period of time. The sunshine is brighter. The birds sing louder and more cheerfully. Life just goes better. And then you go through a season where that sin just seems to have you by the throat and it's wrestled you to the ground and it's stomping all over you and making you tap out, right? Yo-yo Christianity, up and down, up and down, up and down. Sometimes you have the peace of God and the joy of salvation and then it's just gone. And it's, it's discouraging at times, yo-yo Christianity. Why does that happen? The simple reason why so many of us really... Uh, we, we might be described as yo-yo Christians, is we vacillate between walking and living by the Holy Spirit and walking and living according to the flesh. And our life is characterized by this vacillation between these two extremes. Sometimes we walk by the Spirit and we live by the Spirit, and other times we do not. Up and down, up and down. Yo-yo Christianity. The early church in Acts, <clears throat> they, they, they cannot be characterized as yo-yo Christians. They, they are not characterized by sometimes walking by the Spirit and then not. It, it clearly, now, it doesn't mean they're perfect. Certainly, there were times when they were sinning and they struggled. But at least the record we're giving in Acts, and which is showing us how the Holy Spirit was working so strongly in this early church, these early Christians, right? They're characterized by living and being filled with the Spirit. Acts is not the acts of yo-yo Christians. Acts are the acts of Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in this passage, you, you see this, and there's two simple points this morning as we look at this idea of being a Spirit-filled Christian and living according to the Spirit. First thing I want us to see this morning is the required condition for spirit-filled living. Now, we're going to back up a few verses from what, <clears throat> from what Andrea read. Remember the context. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 3. 
Peter and John are on their way to the temple like they would go every day and they were in the afternoon going to pray, go through the beautiful gate, this big entrance into the temple and it's surround, there's beggars everywhere. And one of them in particular has been there for many, many years. Now, when we did the sermon a couple of weeks ago, I said, maybe he's 20, 30, 40, 50. Acts chapter three didn't tell us how old he was, but Acts chapter four does tell us how old he was. He was over 40 years of age. And he had been a cripple and lame since birth. And so for decades, this man had been carried to this gate by his friends, laid down on his mat so he could beg alms for the poor, right? And he could receive some kind of income to survive and to, uh, and to live. On this particular day, Peter and John walk by him and moved by the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit, Peter turns to him and says, look at me. And this man who probably was expecting a nice offering because most people would just ignore him and put coins and move on because there was a, a stigma of shame if you were crippled and lame. On this day, Peter says, look at me. And he does, and he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he healed this man of his lifelong uh, handicap and his crippling disease. He jumps up. He runs around. He goes into the courtyard of the women, this massive courtyard where everyone would gather. Thousands of people could gather in this space. And he's running around, leaping like a deer, glorifying God. I mean, you would too, right? If all your life you had been crippled and never walked, and all of a sudden you're totally healed. And so the crowd just is amazed. They all know this guy. They can't deny this is not one of those pseudo healings that you see on television with a faith healer, right? This is an actual miracle, a healing that's just beyond belief. And so the commotion is loud. People gather around and Peter being a, a good preacher, he takes the opportunity, right? And he begins to proclaim the gospel and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he tells them, even though you crucified Jesus, God raised him from the dead and he's now ascended and sitting on the right hand of God. And this same Jesus is who has healed this man. And people commit their life to Christ. And we see at the beginning of chapter four, 5,000 men now believe. Now, we don't know if that's 5,000 more than what the, the 3,000 that were in Acts chapter two, or if now between Acts chapter two and Acts chapter uh, four, the beginning of chapter four, you have 5,000 men plus, you know, women, children who make up this new early church. But the commotion is real and it gets the attention of the high priest and his father-in-law, Annas and Caiaphas, and the, the governing leaders, and they send out the temple guards and the police and investigate what this commotion is. And they, they arrest Peter and John, and even it seems like the crippled man, and they put him in jail. Overnight, they have to stay in jail. The next morning, Acts chapter four, they bring them in before them. And these are the very men who crucified Jesus, right? Who condemned him. And they bring Peter and John before him. And here in verse seven, you read this. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, understand that this is one of those questions that many of you recognize. You know, some of you are legal experts because you have watched 13 years of law and order, right? And you recognize this for what it is. It is a trap question that the prosecutor is wanting them to answer. 
Because see, in the Old Testament, if you ascribed miraculous power to anyone other than Jehovah, this was a death sentence. And so they ask, by who, by what name, what power do you do this? If they say anything other than Jehovah, they got them. Blasphemy, law, death, right? Trap question. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Here's these Pharisees. Now they're opposed to, to Christianity for theological reasons, against Jesus for theological reasons. And the Sadducees, they are opposed to Jesus and this early movement for political reasons. They, were, they didn't want the, the boat rocked. They were in good with the Romans and they were the elite and they, were, they had their businesses and their money and everything that was happening because they were collaborators with the Roman Empire. They, they actually become the main persecutors of the early Christians, the Sadducees. These very men who crucified Jesus, Peter and John, stand before these guys who, who killed Jesus and they unflinchingly proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he can do for every person who confesses their sinfulness and their need for a savior. And in this message that he gives us and how Peter delivers this message, I would suggest that there's an important application for everyone who wants to end yo-yo Christianity and understand what it takes, what this condition that must be present in our hearts. It has to be this allegiance to Jesus that you see in Peter and John, who are unafraid. They are so loyal to Jesus. Jesus so owns them that they will stand before these men and publicly proclaim the truth of Jesus, even if it costs them their lives. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a condition that is required, and it is allegiance to Jesus in every aspect of life. This has to be the fundamental heart attitude for someone to be a spirit-filled Christian. These men, right? You see it in how they deliver it. They are sold out to Jesus. Their lives are now defined by the presence of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus over them. There's no questioning where they stand. And here they are, these uneducated commoners before the elite, powerful men of their society, and they are so filled with the Spirit, it so affects them, and their allegiance to Jesus is so strong and so pervasive that they confront the very people who jury-rigged that trial 
and wrongly, illegally convicted Jesus and had him crucified, and they put the responsibility for that crime solely on their shoulders, and they do not flinch when they do it. What can give an account for that kind of courage? It's the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that courage, that boldness was so countercultural, and what they were saying was so opposite of what these men believed, they're absolutely befuddled. I like that English word. They are gobsmacked, right? They don't know how to respond. And so they send Peter and, and John out, and they talk among themselves, and they say, <laughs> you know, if we kill these guys, the crowd out there is going to string us up. We can't do anything to them. We got to leave them alone. We got to let them go, or it's going to be us who pays the price. And then I love the line, and, and then this. And, and, and there is the crippled man. <laughs> Exhibit A, that they're telling the truth. Here's this guy running around walking who had never walked a day in his life. It's kind of hard to argue against that, right? And yet it's the, it also shows the depravity of sin, the deepness of sin. The fact that unless God does a work in someone's heart, and opens up their eyes and opens up their minds and gives them a new heart that loves Jesus, you can be confronted with the most miraculous evidence that Jesus is God and the Savior and Messiah, and you'll still explain it away, deny it, and go on living the life that you want. Which is why if you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, the only prayer you really need to be praying right now is God, if what Jerry's saying is true, give me a heart that loves Jesus. Give me a heart that can understand and see this. Because it won't happen unless he opens your eyes. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This morning, is that your testimony? When you hear those words, does something stir within your heart? When, when you hear those words, do those words ring true to you? For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When you hear those words, do you say amen in your heart? Because you ain't saying it with your mouth right now. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> or do you say, oh me? Amen or oh me? There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may, must be saved. Do you believe that? Or, or do you, it's like, eh, yeah, maybe. I think so. You see, that's an important question. It reveals whether or not he has your allegiance or if something else is replacing and competing with him for your love and allegiance. If you're a Christian and you hear words like this, it, it ought to stir something within us that, yes, this is true. This is the testimony of my life. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you're seeking answers for life. Understand that unless Jesus is the cornerstone of your life, 
You will simply go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, for the entirety of your life, looking for satisfaction and peace and joy. And everything you turn to other than Jesus is going to disappoint you. And you can commit years of your life to some alternative, and you're going to find at the end of your life that it's empty, it's vain, it's foolish and futile. And even worse, if you reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, and if he is not the cornerstone of your life, one day you'll stand before God and you'll hear those words, depart from me, you wicked, I never knew you. I never knew you. And the consequences of not having Jesus as your Lord and Savior and the allegiance of your heart being towards Jesus, the consequences is eternal separation from God. If you're a seeker, the greatest thing that you're looking for is found in Jesus. He's the answer. And Christian, spirit-filled living starts right here. Right here is where it starts. It's allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord, Master, and Savior. There's no spirit-filled living apart from that fundamental allegiance of the heart. And so if your experience is that of yo-yo Christianity, you have to ask yourself, what is it in my life right now that is competing with Jesus for my allegiance? Jesus tells us we can't have two masters. We can't love him and love money. We can't love him and love toys. We can't love him, serve him, and serve our careers. We can't trust in him and trust in X, Y, Z for our security. It doesn't work this way. You can't have two masters. And when you try, yo-yo Christianity is the result. I've lived this. I've experienced it. It's true. It's an ongoing battle in my own heart. We, we are naturally drawn to give our allegiance to something other than Jesus. This is the sin nature within us, which is why we have to understand it and identify it and constantly mortify the flesh and the sin that is within us so that we are true to our Savior. That's the conditions, the un, unequivocal baseline condition for spirit-filled living is allegiance to Jesus in every aspect of our life. That this is the fundamental heart attitude that we have. Now, let's look at the common characteristics of spirit-filled living. There's three of them in this passage, verses 23 to 37 that Andrea read for us, and we're gonna end on these three common characteristics this morning. The very first one is passionate prayer that is God-oriented and biblically informed. So they are released from prison, and they return to their friends. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to him. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, now they begin to pray collectively as the people of God. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our prophet David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, 
They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is one of my favorite prayers in the entire Bible. And I think the reason why is it, in some respects, it convicts me of my own prayer life. How often I come to my heavenly Father and I get straight to the supplication. Lord, please do this for my child, my children. Lord, this person in our church is having this issue. And I bring to God these very legitimate needs and requests and ask him to, to address it and take care of it according to his will. I get right to it, right? Right to the supplication. That's not what this church does. These Christians who are filled with the Spirit do. It's interesting to see how before they ever voice their request, they first fill their hearts and their minds with the truth of who God is. And specifically, they fill their hearts and minds with the sovereignty of God, sovereign Lord. And then they begin to, to proclaim what that sovereignty looks like. How did they understand the sovereignty of God? How did they understand and, and see who God is? You see it in these verses. Verse 24, he's the transcendent God of creation who created and made the heavens and the earth. Charles Spurgeon wrote many years ago, back when he was pastoring in the 1800s, that true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is a spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. They understood that God is the transcendent creator who made everything, including them. He's high and lifted up and holy in some respects, he's inscrutable because of his otherness and his holiness. We can't totally understand who he is. He's the transcendent God of creation. He created us. He made us. But yet he's not just distant and lifted up and holy. He's also with us as we talked a few moments ago and we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. He's the transcendent God of creation, but he's also the eminent God of revelation who spoke by the Holy Spirit through his prophet David and predicted in Psalm chapter two that Jesus the Messiah would be rejected by the very people who he came to save. He's the sovereign Lord. He's transcendent because of his role as creator. He's eminent in the way that he has revealed himself and walked among us as he took on flesh in Jesus. And that sovereignty is seen even further in verse 26, where he reveals himself as the omniscient, omnipotent God of history who accomplishes his plan even through his enemies. Pilate, the Romans, those very men that they were preaching to and speaking to at the Sanhedrin, how it is that God in all of his sovereignty 
forms a plan of redemption and he carries it out to the nth degree. He, and there's no better example than Jesus himself, but it's, it's still happening today. He carries out his redemptive plan and he does it through the sinful, free actions of human beings. And he does all of that in a way that we, we're just never gonna understand this side of heaven. But his sovereignty is absolute and yet, the very people who crucified Jesus, they are responsible because they freely chose to kill him and to shout, crucify him, just as we freely choose to sin and rebel against him. They do the same. And yet our sin and rebellion, their sin and rebellion, the sin and rebellion of our culture, the forces aligned in this world, the religions that are anti-Christ, they will not stop the omnipotent, sovereign plan of God. It is all powerful, it is going to occur. And this is who they understood God to be. And it's important that we understand that God is like this. It shapes how we pray. It helps us to pray with integrity and with intensity, believing that God is sovereign over our lives and over this world. It doesn't cause us to be apathetic people who just say, okay, well, it's gonna work itself out. Believing in the sovereignty of God rather than hindering our prayers, they empower, it empowers our prayers. Elizabeth Elliot wrote that prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between his will and its accomplishment on earth. Amazing things happen and we are given the privilege of being the channels of the Holy Spirit's prayer. In this passage, right, he's the transcendent God of creation, the eminent God of revelation, the omnipotent, omniscient God of history, and he's the all-loving God of redemption who gave his son for us so that we could be reconciled to him. Understanding who God is is vital to our prayer lives. It ensures that we are praying to God as he has revealed himself and not to some self-created, self-imagined, idolatrous vision of God who typically ends up looking like Santa Claus in some way or another. Just give me, give me. Cosmic Santa Claus that's at our beck and call. That's not the God of the Bible. And if we're gonna have effective prayer lives, it starts with having a God-oriented, biblically-informed understanding of who he is. Second characteristic, there's bold witnessing that proclaims the goodness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Peter and John are filled before they come to the Sanhedrin. Now these Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for filled here is pimplemi, pimplemi. And it appears throughout the scriptures, a couple of examples of it. At the cross, when Jesus was thirsty, the centurions took the sponge and they soaked it in sour wine. Remember that? And then they lifted it up and they gave it to him to drink. It was oozing out of the sponge. So pimplemi means like to be so saturated that it just oozes out. Another example of it was when Mary came to Jesus with that very expensive perfume. Remember the scene where she's so in awe of Jesus and so appreciative of Jesus that she takes this perfume 
a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled, and play me, with the fragrance of the perfume, okay? And you guys get this, right? Some of you, you like those little things or potpourri or whatever, and your whole house smells like. Personally, I like chocolate chip cookie smell filling the house, right? But you get the idea, right? There's an aroma that can fill the house. This is pimplamy. And so it's saying to us that when we are filled with the Spirit, we will give off the aroma of Jesus. It'll be every, we will ooze Jesus, will point people to Jesus. Church, there's a misunderstanding in our Christian world today that to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that essentially, you know, we're filled and we just get to bask in the presence and, and everything, it's, you know, it's about us and how it makes us feel. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is about Jesus, first and foremost. Remember, the role of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Jesus, as Messiah and Lord. And so when we're blessed by the Spirit's filling, it's most often going to manifest in our thoughts about Jesus, in our words about Jesus, in our love for Jesus. It will manifest itself by there being a stronger allegiance to Jesus and our service and obedience of Jesus to Jesus being more powerful. And certainly, as we see in this passage, both earlier with Peter and John, and now with these disciples, when they are filled with the Spirit, a common characteristic of being filled is a boldness to testify to the goodness of Jesus in our lives and who Jesus is. This is a common baseline characteristic. And through the centuries, this has been the case, that people who are filled with the Spirit boldly proclaim Him regardless of the opposition Kent Hughes tells the story of a, of a circuit-riding preacher that I've long appreciated. I read his biography many, many years ago. Circuit-riding preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. If you don't know what a circuit-riding preacher was, in our nation's history, after the American Revolution, around the, uh, the turn of the century, the Second Great Awakening kind of begins, and you know, we begin to expand out of the original 13 colonies, and we start going to you know, Georgia and Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, the, you know, everything east of the Mississippi, right? You know, up in the eastern portion, uh, the northeast and the middle colonies, it was primarily Presbyterian or Anglican, but as we spread out west and went further, it was primarily people were, became either Baptist or Methodist, and there weren't enough pastors to, to fill these different towns that were springing up in these churches. And so the, those denominations, the Methodist denomination, Baptist, they, they ordained what they called circuit-riding preachers. A guy was given a circuit. It would be you know, hundreds of miles that he would ride on horseback and he would go from town to town to town to town. And maybe once a month or once every couple of months, the town would get the pastor and he would come and he would preach and teach and minister to people and he would ride to the next town. And for decades, this happened. The most legendary of those men was Peter Cartwright. And he had been raised in Kentucky. He'd been raised with a rough background in a rogues city, full of crime and fighting. But he came to Christ around 17 years of age, and it changed him dramatically from the life that he was on. And for the rest of his life, he preaches, and he's a circuit-riding preacher. He rides thousands of miles over the next 50 years, living his life out for God. little tidbit about him is when he settled in Illinois, he, he ultimately left Tennessee and Kentucky because of slavery, his opposition to it. 
didn't want to raise his family in it. So he got transferred to Illinois later in his life, and he defeated Abraham Lincoln for a seat in the state house in the debates. He outdebated Abraham Lincoln. That'll tell you something, right? But then later he lost Abraham Lincoln when Abraham Lincoln ran for Congress. So there's a little, little side note. It has nothing to do with this sermon. <laughs> but Peter Cartwright was bold. He would go into a city and, and he would, a town, and, and he would preach for three hours. So all of you right now should say, thank you, Jerry. Okay. <laughs> Amen. Amen. That gets an amen out of you, right? He would preach for three hours. And of course, it was the only show in town, right? So everybody would come, even the drunkards and the criminal element. And they would sit there and over three hours, you know, they're not going to go without drinking whiskey. And so by the end of his sermon, they were, they were laid out, they were drunk and they would get belligerent. And on more than one occasion, Peter Cartwright would stop his sermon and take a belligerent guy who was heckling and scorning him and yelling and he'd say, meet me over in the woods. And he'd take care of business, beat him <laughs> quiet and then come back and pick his sermon back up, right? Incredible guy. So, uh, you know, be careful. No, no, I'm just, right? But one day he, he, comes to, he's, he comes to this town and it's a Sunday morning. He's gonna preach. The deacon comes to him and says, Pastor Cartwright, in the audience this morning is President Andrew Jackson. Please don't offend him. <laughs> can you, you know, basically he said, can you tone it down? You know, not be so aggressive and, and not offend the president, please. And so the service begins and then it's time for Peter Cartwright to come and preach. And he steps up to the podium and he says, I understand President Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent and trust in Jesus Christ. <laughs> and the whole church just gasped, you know, and they all look at the president wondering what's going on. He goes on with his sermon. At the end of the sermon, President Jackson walks up to him and shakes his hand and he says, sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. <laughs> There's something that happens when the spirit fills us. It can give us the ability to stand before a president or before the men who crucified Jesus or from the skeptics in our families or the seekers at our work, and it gives us the power and the ability to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of who we are and encourage them to put their trust in the only one who can save them and deliver them and reconcile them to their God. It's this, this is not a natural ability. It's not natural to us. It's something that is supernatural. And it only comes from the Holy Spirit and it only comes to those who see Jesus as the cornerstone of their life and the allegiance of their heart is given to him. So there's this passionate prayer. It's God-oriented and biblically informed. There's this boldness to witness and proclaim the goodness of God in Jesus. There's one final characteristic here. It's a sacrificial generosity that blesses the people of God and the body of Christ. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were given their t- giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What an incredible testimony. What an incredible testimony of generosity and these spirit-filled Christians. They willfully and joyfully sacrificed, sold assets, sold things that they may be relying upon for their own financial security in the future, or sold things that they could have passed down to their family by way of inheritance. And they gave generously to meet the needs of God's people. And as you see throughout the book of Acts, to fulfill the mission of God's church. Why is generosity such a common characteristic of spirit-filled Christianity? I think it goes back to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. God the Father gave us Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts so that we can build up the church and gives us his presence. God the Son, our Lord Jesus, gave up all the glory of heaven and laid it aside and took on human flesh as Emmanuel to walk with us and to ultimately give up his life so that we could become sons and daughters of God. The reason why generous giving is a common characteristic of the Spirit-filled Christian is because we have a generous giving Lord. And as we are changed by the Holy Spirit and conformed into His image, generosity is going to ooze out of us. That's a part of the fragrance of the gospel. You remember back in October, the first message, the beginning of October, when Pastor Tim Rice came and he brought to us that great message on missions, and he gave us that great image. As Christians who are spirit-filled, what describes our life is not a, a tight, holding, clenched fist, but an open hand. An open hand that seeks to bless the church of God and the kingdom of God through generously giving of our time and our treasure and our talents. I appreciate this about our church and the generosity of our church. And it's going to take this spirit-filled generosity church as we are in this early, the first Sunday of a capital campaign, right? We're looking at building this new facility. And, and what are the elders asking of all of us? They're asking of all of us to come before the Lord, to pray and to, to look and see what, does it, what is it for me that is sacrificial, generous giving. Recognizing that God loves a cheerful, generous giver. What does that look like for me? Let's start as families asking that question over the next couple of weeks. And then as God gives us insight as to what it is to be generous and to sacrifice for the needs that we have before us as a church, we respond in faith and in love, giving back to the one who's given so much to us. I hope that you're busy looking at it like that, praying like that. Let's bow our heads this morning and we're going to close in a little different way. Rather than me praying and closing as the worship team comes up, I wanna direct you in prayer. So please bow your heads and 
close your eyes, and I'm going to give you a couple of things to contemplate and pray over this morning. First, the quietness of your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you those things that may have your allegiance more than Jesus, that are competing with your allegiance for Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us this morning those things in our lives that we turn to rather than our Lord? We all have friends, family, co-workers that we know are not Christians. Let's take a moment and let's ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with a boldness and a winsomeness so that we can proclaim the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ to those who we're burdened for. And finally, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to be open-handed Christians and not closed-fisted, to be generous and sacrificial and joyful as we face this unique opportunity in our church's history and life. Lord Jesus, would you build within us a pervasive, all-consuming allegiance to you so that in everything, our prayer life, our witnessing, our generosity, we are filled and walking by the Spirit. Give us this work of grace, we ask, so that we can be your ambassadors to our friends, to our neighbors, as a church to the city of Palm Bay so that we can represent you well. Pour out your spirit on our church, Lord Jesus. Change us, transform us. In your name we pray, amen.